As David mentioned, Advent, four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to primarily look back at Jesus' first coming and focus on how he's present with us now by his spirit. There's also an element of looking forward to his second coming. We won't spend a ton of time on that. Our theme for this month is going to be God with us. That's from Matthew, I think, 123. The angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a son, name him Emmanuel, which means God with us, which is the fulfillment of a prophecy that you can find in Isaiah 7:14. And so we're going to poke all around this idea of God with us. Today we're going to look at God with us leading us or God in front of us, that idea that God is with us to lead and guide and direct. And we're going to do that by looking at a story in the Old Testament. We're not going to look at all that it means. We're just going to look for the elements of it that talk about God leading us, but let me give you a bit of context so you can grab on to what we're talking about. So, this is Exodus 13. What's happened? The the Hebrews have been in Egypt for 430 years. You remember we talked when we were going through Genesis, Jacob and Joseph and all of their family moved to Egypt. Fast forward 430 years. Massive change happens about 200 years in. There's a new regime in charge. And the new regime in charge of Egypt, the Bible says, doesn't know Joseph. They didn't know, they forgot, they didn't know him, they didn't know that he had saved their entire empire because of what he'd done with the famine. And so this new regime, this new pharaoh, he's intimidated by the Hebrews. There's so many of them. They started off with 70 men, now they've got 600,000 men, there's 2 million people overall. And he's concerned. He says that these guys align themselves with our enemies, they can overthrow us. And so his solution, this new pharaoh, is to oppress the people. And if you read uh, Exodus 1, you'll see he treats them very, very poorly. You'll see the word ruthless used several times. Their lives were bitter with hard labor. The Bible says they basically, well, not basically, it's what they did. They made bricks. They had a quota and they made bricks. And that wasn't tamping down their numbers enough. So Pharaoh says to his two midwives, I want you to, every male baby that's born, I want you to kill. And the midwives won't do it. So then he sends out a order to all of his people, the whole nation, and says, if you see Hebrew babies, you throw them in the Nile River. Drown them. These Hebrew male babies. Girls can live, boys can't. We can't allow this uh, nation, this group of people, to continue to grow. And so after 430 years, 200-ish of which are lived in this pretty brutal slave environment, God sends Moses to deliver the Hebrews. And the way he does that is he goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord, God, that these are his people, and he says, let them go. Let them go back to the land that he uh, established for them. Let them go back and worship him. And Pharaoh just says no. Nine times, Pharaoh says no. And every time Moses goes, what Moses says is confirmed by a sign. You'll read them in Exodus as the plagues. The Nile River turns to blood. There's frogs, gnats, darkness, all kinds of stuff. To me, they get increasingly more intense as you read through. They're 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 stronger, for lack of a better word. The effects are more devastating from these plagues. And every time Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it. There's some times where he says, okay, I'll do it. And then he changes his mind once the plague has lifted. He won't let the Hebrews go. And so finally God says, enough's enough. And so the tenth plague is called the plague of the firstborn, where the firstborn son in every Egyptian house is killed. And the firstborn of all the livestock is killed. That's the Passover. You might remember that. Put some blood on your doorpost for the Hebrews and the angel of death will pass over your house. And so that happens. And when that, that night, when that plague comes, that angel of death wreaks havoc in the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, get out of here. Y'all leave. 
Take your wives, take your kids, take your livestock. Here's some silver, here's some gold, here's some clothes. Just leave. And so all two million of them leave. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Listen for all of the leading and guiding language in this chapter. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with, up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they encamped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi ha Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their service. So he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The, Egyptian, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Don't be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots. They had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, put their trust in him, and in Moses, his servant. Again, there's a ton there. We could spend weeks looking at that passage. What we're going to talk about specifically is how do we see God leading the Hebrews, the Israelites, through that passage. I see several things. One, I see the leading there is, is clear. There's a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, and that's you can see it. They can all see it. Moses can see it, and all two million people can see this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. This is Numbers 9. You don't have to flip there. It'll be on the screen describing this cloud. On that day, the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, and the cloud covered it. So imagine uh, it's a portable worship center is what it is. It's all made of cloth and poles that can be moved. So that's the worship center, the sanctuary, if you like, in the wilderness. And so what they're saying is when that thing was built, this cloud, which represents God's presence, settled on it. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered this tabernacle, this tent, at night, and it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whether the cloud, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. You get the picture. So there's this tent where people meet God. Moses is allowed to go in the tent. The rest of the folks aren't. That's where he meets God. And when the presence of God represented by this cloud, moves, then everybody goes with him. So that's kind of the picture. So we're going from spot to spot, and that little passage in Numbers, which was incredibly repetitive, was just meant to say they did it. If the cloud stayed for a day, then they stayed where they were for a day. If it stayed for a year, it was a year. If it was a month for a month, they didn't know. They're wandering in the wilderness, and a couple of chapters after Numbers, we'll see it's for 40 years because of their disobedience. For 40 years, they're in the wilderness, and that's how they live. There is no map, there's no guide, all they have is God's presence moving around and then following him around from spot to spot. So it's clear they were able to follow. Think about Jesus, God in the flesh, with us. His basic command, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to follow Jesus. That's the simplest definition of a Christian, someone who follows Jesus. His invitation to the disciples, come and follow me. If we're following him, by implication, he is leading us. He's in front of us. And sometimes we think, I want that type of clarity. Give me a man that I can follow after. Give me a cloud. Give me a pillar. Give me some fire. Give me something like that that I can see 
And then I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Just make it clear. Make it plain. There are obviously some logistical issues. There's two billion Christians in the world. That would be a lot of, lots of clouds, and we're trying to figure out whose cloud is who. But even beyond that, give me something. Give me something like that that I can put my weight on. What I want you to see and know is clarity does not guarantee faithfulness. Right after that passage we just read in Numbers, the Israelites rebel spectacularly. God says, send 12 spies into the land. And I want you to check it out and see if it's good. Ten of them come back and say, we can't do it. The people there are giants. They're going to crush us like grasshoppers too. Joshua and Caleb say, we can do this. And everybody sides with the ten cowards. And God is ticked. And he says to Moses, I'm wiping all of them out. Two million. I'm wiping them all out. I'm done. And I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, don't do it. Don't. It'll make your name look bad. Don't do it. And God says, okay, I won't. I'll forgive them. But here's the thing, Israelites. You've tested me ten times. If you read Exodus and Numbers, you'll see ten different times that they gripe and grumble and complain about everything. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How come we have to keep eating this food that falls from the sky? Why do we, of all things, did you bring us out here to kill us? Absolutely, that's what I did. Can you imagine? He wants to wring their necks. They rebel repeatedly and spectacularly, even though they have this cloud that's leading them around. We think, give me a cloud. Give me a man to follow and I'll do it. What the Bible says is, no, we won't. The Hebrews, they didn't. It was clear. It didn't guarantee their faithfulness. The disciples literally had Jesus like here to there, talking with him, eating with him, sleeping around a campfire with him. And they were, read it, they were idiots, bumbling idiots, confused almost all of the time. What do you do? I don't, he, and he says to them, at one point he's like, how long do I have to stay with y'all? How long am I going to be with y'all? I think it's from this place of, Loving frustration. It's like you do with your kids sometimes. I want to wring your neck. How come you don't get this? That's how I th- and that's the response. It's clear. But they st- it doesn't guarantee obedience. And I just say that to you because for most of us, the issue is not a lack of clarity. It's a lack of commitment on our part. We're not committed to the things that God has shared with us. We have such a high bar for clarity. It's like, what, what else do you want? And the bar is so high, it keeps us, it insulates us from ever having to respond. So as we move forward, keep that in mind. The issue for most of us is not clarity, it's commitment. So God's leading is clear, and at the same time, to me, it's pretty unclear. It's both at the same time. I've got this pillar of fire, I've got this pillar of cloud, or I've got Jesus in front of me. That's clear. But a lot of times I don't get kind of what, I don't get it, how he's working. You can see that here in this passage. Very beginning. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. He didn't take them on the quickest route. For me, if I'm here and you want to get me to the promised land, then let's take the most direct route. Right off the bat, it seems like we've made a wrong turn. Then verse 14, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near this place, between this place and the sea. So not only when we leave this oppressive place that we've been living? Do we not take the shortest route to our destination? Then you tell me to double back towards the place we just left, and you want us to stop 
next to this massive sea where we're sitting ducks. That doesn't make sense. It's not clear what you're doing. And you can see the people's response. They go, why did you lead us out here? Were there no graves in Egypt? Is that why you took us here? So now you've got us pinned between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. We've got nowhere to go. Why? I, I don't get it. Why would you do this to us, Moses, by implication? Why would you do this to us, God? And so God's leading is clear, but sometimes it's not. And again, I think both of those things hold together. He gives us enough revelation to take a step, but not so much that it guarantees results. There's always this faith-trust element in there. And so keep that in mind. What is his leading? God is with me. He leads me. Yes, he will make your way clear, but not totally. It's not crystal clear going to be still kind of fuzzy, which gets to this last idea that God's leading is always purposeful. What does he say? He led them on the way that was longer for, because, God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. They weren't ready. They'd just come out of slavery. So think about this. So for 200 years, so that's you, your dad, your granddad, your great-granddad, and your great-great-granddad. All you've known is slavery. That's all you've known. You've heard stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've heard about a promised land. You've heard that you're God's chosen people. It certainly doesn't feel like it when all you're doing is making bricks all day. But you're God's chosen people. So that's somewhere in the back of your mind. But your personal experience and the experience of everybody you know who's breathing is we're slaves. That's what we do. And when you finally begin to taste freedom, you're probably glad that you're not making bricks anymore. And you're glad if your wife has a baby, the baby's not going to be thrown in a boy. The boy's not going to be thrown in the Nile River. But you don't know any of it. You don't know any of this. This is all unknown. This is uncharted, literally, territory for you. I've never been here physically. I've never been here spiritually. All I know is life as a slave. And so when you face opposition, easy to revert back to what you know. And what God is saying is y'all aren't ready. You're not tough enough internally to face opposition. When you see the Egyptians, you're going to say, send me home. And that's exactly what happened. They saw the Egyptians and what they say? Let's go back. Moses, we said, leave us alone. We said, don't even bother us. We're okay being slaves. That's how beaten down they were in their mindset. That they were like, this is better. It's better for us to be slaves. And so God knew that. So he took them on a longer route. It was for their good. Even though they couldn't necessarily see that. In chapter 14. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue the Hebrews, the Israelites. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. So what you have is this idea that God says, I'm going to take you the longer route because you're not internally strong enough to hold on to your freedom. And I'm going to put you in this really tight spot so that I get glory. So God's leading is always for our good and for his glory. You can count on that. So it's clear, yes. But it's not crystal clear, yes. So how am I supposed to walk out in that? Because bedrock foundation, I know his leading is for my good and for his glory. His glory, that sounds egocentric. Why would he want to do that? The best thing for anyone is to say yes to Jesus. And the way more people say yes to Jesus is for more people to know who he is. That's the spreading of his glory. That's the spreading of his fame. We need everybody to know. I think it's in Habakkuk. I'm sure you read that this morning. It says, The glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover 
the sea. Something like that. That makes sense. Waters don't cover the seas. Like water covers the earth. That's what we want. We want his glory to fill the whole earth. Because the more people who know, the more people have an opportunity to say yes. And that's the best thing for everybody. And so that's what's going on here. What God says is this, is all, this works. This is for your good. You're not strong enough to face opposition. And this is for my glory because I'm about to do something that's going to blow your socks off. And that's what he does. So God's leading. Clear. Yes. Check. Unclear. Check. How do I move forward in faith? Because foundationally I know it's for my good, his leading, and for his glory. His leading does both of those things. So where does that leave us? Same place it always leaves us. Having to trust. That's what God's about. For, uh, forming trust within us. That's what he says in chapter 14, verse 31. After he does this miraculous thing with the Red Sea, what are the results? The Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. They feared the Lord, and they put their trust in God and in Moses, his servant. So that's the, that's the end result. So I want you to try to dial back, put yourself there. You're standing on the shore of Lake Alatuna, and you're looking out. And behind you are the bad guys. You've just, you've got, it's you, it's your wife, it's your kids, it's all your stuff, it's all your animals, you're all there. You've just been delivered miraculously from slavery. You've walked out of Egypt. They've been giving you stuff as you go because they just want you to leave. You see this pillar of fire, cloud thing, and it goes and sets up behind you, in between you and the bad guys. And then your leader holds out a stick, and there's this gale force wind that starts blowing. And it literally pushes the water back and separates it. And so you've got this wall of water on your right and this wall of water on your left. And then your leader says, we're walking across this thing. It's not six feet. We're walking all the way across it, however far it is. Two million people. If your name begins with Z, you're probably going, is it still going to be there when I... You're wondering about that. And so you think about that. You're stepping into this lake that's been divided in half by this massive wind, walls of water on each side. It's not quiet. This is loud. And you've got two million people that you're trying to walk across. And you're probably poking at the water to see what it's... Is it going to come down? I don't know. I, I don't uh, picture it. Millions of gallons of water on either side of you when you're walking across it, most likely holding your breath. Is it going to make, am I going to make it? You get to the other side, and then Zebulon, because they begin with a Z, they're last, and they finally get across. And then all the bad guys come, and you're going, oh, what are we going to do now? And then their wheels get stuck in the mud. And your leader holds out his stick and all those millions of gallons of water crash back on top of them. Kills them all. These guys who've been treating you ruthlessly for 200 years. These guys who've been killing your kids for generations. That group wiped out. Like, what what are you going to do the next time that God says do something? Right? You're doing it. You got it. Yes, sir. What do you need right now? Your faith is massive at that point. Why? Because you've seen these mighty acts. You've seen it. Like you literally have walked through a lake on dry ground. You don't forget that. That type of work increases your faith. 
And that's what he's looking for from us. Remember, faith, think trust. It's relational. It's not change in your pocket. It's relational, connection, belief in him. I'm going to do what you say because I trust you. And every time you take a step, which is clear but still kind of murky, is is it going to hold all the way across for all two million people? Every time you do that, you see him work, your faith grows. Your trust in him increases, which is always the point. That's why it's never crystal clear. It's never crystal clear because what he's wanting, his ultimate goal, is for you to grow in your trust and faith in him. And the only way to do that is to take a risk. That's it. If we're not risking, then we're not growing. There's no exercise of faith. If you see faith as a muscle, if there's no gap between what you know and what he's asking, then there's no place for that muscle to be exercised. And so that's what, and that's what he's doing here. And that's what he was doing with the disciples. And that's what he's doing in our lives. So his leading is clear, yes, but it's also murky, yes. Why? Because he's trying to grow faith in us. Well, how am I supposed to trust it? Because I can say it's always for our good and it's always for his glory. And those things are worth risking for. So what does that look like for us moving forward? I was thinking about the Hebrews. If you read Exodus and Numbers, like you will, I want to wring their necks. They are a bunch of babies. They whine and gripe and complain about everything. At one point, they say, let us go back. Why? Because they have cucumbers. You ever had a cucumber? Is it worth slavery for you? Are they that good? They have cucumbers and onions and garlic. That's what they say. Let us go back. I don't understand that. Let me make bricks all day and let me risk you killing my babies because I want cucumbers and onions and garlic. That's how all of this for them, it's all jumbled up. They've had 200 years of slavery, and it's hard to live as sons. I'm using that in gender-neutral term. It's hard to live as sons when, you, when your history says you're a slave. The easiest thing in the world is to revert back and to live like... It's, it's better. It's better for me to live as a slave because at least I know what I'm going to do every day. I'm going to make bricks. Out here, I never know if the cloud's going to be here or is the cloud going to move. And when it moves, I've got a responsibility to move with it. And what if I really like where I am? You're going to make me pick up stakes, literally, and follow this thing. And then as soon as we get settled, then it moves again. Every morning I have to wake up and trust there's going to be food falling from the sky. It's a lot easier for my wicked, ruthless slave masters. They bring me food because if I don't eat, I don't work. So at least I can count on it there. I can see the people giving it to me. I don't just wake up in the morning and have it appear. And any time I try to save the food, it turns rotten the next day. There are maggots in it. I can't plan. I can't prepare. It would be much easier for me. And it is easier. It's always easier to be a slave than to be a son. To be a son, there's a level of responsibility and engagement with your father that's not required of a slave and his slave master. All you've got to do, all you have to know as a slave is how many bricks I have to make today. Okay? And then you just get to work and you make the bricks. As a son, God, what are you wanting? Father, what, what does it look like to live before you today, to please you today, to live a life of faith today? What does that look Where are you going to move today? And how do I follow you in that? It's a much higher level of engagement and responsibility. And honestly, for most of us, being a slave is easier. Some of us are a slave to fear. It's what Ben talked about 
earlier. Uh, Romans 8.15 talks about uh, that we're not given a spirit that makes us slaves to fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons. But for many of us, we're driven. We're not led by the spirit. We're driven by a fear of failure. You heard Ben talk about that. Driven by a fear of poverty, by a fear of injury, by a fear of ridicule, some even by a fear of success. We're so driven by our fears, we're not led by the spirit. Some of us are slaves to our flesh the desires that we have. We just do what we want, which may sound like freedom, but ask an alcoholic if they're free. That's the way sin is. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, he who sins is a slave to sin. And maybe not the first time, but that's just bait to lure you in. And over time, that sin, which you're, you enjoy initially, becomes the master of your life. And you wrap your whole life around that sin and hiding it and engaging in it. Sometimes the practices for many of us are not even sinful. It's just the habits that we've developed over time. We come in and we turn on the TV because we want to or because we always do. I'm a slave to that. We just got through with Thanksgiving. We're slaves to our appetites in a lot of ways. Our bodies are the boss of us. We're not led by the Spirit. We're driven by our desires. For many of us, it's our surroundings. Paul talks about in um, Galatians 4, these gods that aren't gods that run our life. And you can spiritualize that and call them powers and principalities, or you can just kind of say it's the culture that we live in and the air that we breathe. But either way, it's these, I see it as being driven by expectations of the places where we live and the people who we're with versus being led by the Spirit. And we'll do that this month from Thanksgiving to Christmas is huge for many of us in terms of being driven by expectations. How many of you went somewhere you didn't want to go for Thanksgiving just because you were supposed to? And you had a conversation that you wouldn't normally have just because that's what you do around this table. You drank more than you should have because that's what I do at this place. And How many of you have more of those things coming? Like you already have these things that you're dreading. Hands are going up in the room. You already have these things that you're dreading just because that's what you do. You're being driven by expectations of others. You're not being led by the Spirit. It's easier to be a slave and just go along than it is to be a son and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go, but I'm going to go and this is how I'm going to be. Or I mean, I'm just not going to go. Or whatever those things are. You've got to be led by the Spirit in those things. I'm not telling you to not go to your mother-in-law's house for Christmas. What I'm saying is, are you being driven by your surroundings, are the expectations of what it means to do Christmas, are the expectations of what it means in your field of work, to be a a good worker in your field, or to be a good mom, or whatever those things are, are those things driving you? Or are you truly being led by the Spirit? I told you all before, I talk to people who are busy. Everybody I talk to is busy. And what I say is, none of those things are the boss of you. Just don't do them. Just don't. Stop. But it's so hard when you've got the weight of all of these expectations behind you pushing you forward. At some point, I want you to say, I'm a son. Whether you're a man or a woman, I'm a son. I'm not a slave. And I'm going to figure out, God, what does it look like to live a life that's pleasing to you? Where's the cloud moving today? I'm going to follow that. I'm not going to be driven by what everybody else expects of me. There's freedom for you. It's just, it's, it takes a little more, it takes some getting used to.
we're all like the Hebrews. We've been so conditioned to a life of slavery. A life of freedom for us honestly is scary. And so we tend to pull back from that. So let's pray about that as we close. I want to give you a prayer. um, Walk you through and you can choose if you want to pray along in your heart uh, with me or not. The thing I'm going to pray is that God would bring conviction. And so um, what that feels like, for some people, they're kind of convicted in their mind. They recognize kind of mentally or intellectually, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm not living obediently in that area. And for other people, conviction is much more of a feeling. It, almost, it can kind of feel like a queasy in your stomach almost. It's kind of, oh. So depending on if you're more thinker or feeler, conviction feels that way. But conviction is always specific. God doesn't convict us generally. He convicts us of specific things so that we can repent. And so if what you're feeling is general, most likely that's not from the Lord. That's probably condemnation, which is something different. And I would encourage you just to kind of slough that off. So God, my prayer is that you would come down, that you would um, lead us and meet with us during this time. I do pray, uh, Father, you say your spirit convicts us of sin and of truth, and of righteousness. And so my prayer for each of us is that you would bring conviction in areas where we're living like slaves and not like sons. God, if we're living, if anyone here is living as a slave to their flesh, would you bring conviction there and specifically show them where that is? God, for those of us who are living as slaves to fear, would you bring conviction and would you tell us what the fear is? What are we afraid of? And if we're living as slaves to our surroundings, to expectations of others, would you convict us of that and show us how that plays out? So if anything, if you felt anything or thought anything, and you just want to, again, if your heart can agree with this prayer, just pray this with me. God, I confess that I'm living as a slave to, and fill in the blank. I want to repent of that, and I want to begin to live like a son in that area of my life. God, thank you for giving me your spirit who leads and guides me through every second of my day. I want to be sensitive to him. Particularly in this area, I want to be sensitive. I want to know what it looks like to live like a son. I confess it's easier for me to live like a slave than a son, but I want to live in the freedom that Jesus purchased for me. So help me. Show me what it looks like. I commit to you on the front end to obedience as much as I'm able. In Jesus' name, amen.